And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the third of the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is a description, it's an introduction to the letter, and a description of Jesus Christ, the one that is sending this letter. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he has words for each of seven churches in Asia, which is not the continent of Asia, it is the Roman province of Asia in what is called modern-day Turkey, or Asia Minor, you may have heard it. These are letters dictated by Jesus to John the Evangelist, John the Apostle. And there's a familiar structure to each one of these letters that enables us to break it down and study it closely. It starts with the address to the angel of the church. We've already looked at what the angel might be, what that might mean. And at, at the very least, it's symbolic for the whole church. So we're just going to move along. And it's written to the church in Pergamum. Some of the older translations and others have Pergamos. Pergamos would be the Hellenistic or the Greek form of that name. Pergamum would be the Latin or the Roman form of that name. It's the same name. Uh, it's, it's just different ways of, of vocalizing the name of that city. Pergamum is the third in this sequence of seven. It's to the north of Smyrna. You're going to see as we go through this that the letters make a circuit. They make a clockwise circle starting at Ephesus and going around to Laodicea. This is to the north of Smyrna. And Pergamum was another large city. All of them so far have been large, important cities. They will not all be. Thyatira, for example, is a rather small city. But he's writing to the church here in a very large city known for its cultural centers. Pergamum had a world-renowned library. It also had a university that was famous around the world. There were palaces there where the princes and the princesses of the, the aristocracy of Rome would come and they would spend time. And it also, as many of these large cities were, was a center for idolatrous worship. There were all sorts of temples and other false gods to be worshipped, ranging from Zeus had a great temple there, all the way to Roma, worshipping Rome, to temples for Caesar and worshipping him as Lord. Most prominent, though, in the city of Pergamum, which I think becomes relevant when you look at verse 13, was the temple of Asclepius. You maybe have heard of Asclepius before. This was the god of healing, represented by a giant snake. If you have ever seen the medical logo that has the two snakes interlocking, that is a reference to the Greek god Asclepius, who was the god of healing and was a snake god. Of course, for us, it's nothing more than just a symbol that references something. But for them, this was very real. There were these snakes that they would worship. And I even read that some uh, worship that was done in honor of this God, whether it happened here or at this time is sometimes tough to tell, but uh, people would take these sedatives and would lay down in the temple and these venomous snakes, which were allowed to roam free, would slither over them and they believed that the touch of the snake was, was uh, efficacious for healing. So that's one religion that we can scratch off the list as far as I'm concerned. But it was very, very much known. This was the prominent worship center, was the temple of Asclepius, the snake god of healing and medicine. Well, Jesus then identifies himself. So it's always to the angel of the church in this city, and then he describes himself. And he picks one of the attributes from chapter 1 and focuses on that, and that's usually relevant to what he has to say to the church. In this case, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... 
We saw this back in chapter 1, verse 6, describing Jesus in his glorified state, that there was a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And whether this was an actual image that John saw of a sword coming out of his mouth, or whether it meant that when he spoke, it was like getting struck with a sword, is is immaterial. He says here, I'm the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And that's a rather intimidating thing, isn't it? To think of Jesus sending you a letter, and the way he describes himself is, the one who has a sword in his hand, or coming out of his mouth in this case. You know, usually say, from your dearest, darlingest, beloved, it's so nice to write to you, says, from that one who has that sharp sword. What are you trying to communicate when you identify yourself that way? Power? Authority? It's intimidating. It's supposed to intimidate the church. And this is not an image we typically assign to our Lord Jesus. You don't see many stained glass windows that show Jesus holding a sword in his hand. And if he is, he's usually facing down the devil or he's facing down the wicked one. Have you ever thought of the Lord Jesus staring down the church with a sword in his hand? Because that is what he is doing in this passage. Because the church in Pergamum had compromised. This is very famously and often referred to as the compromising church. And it's what we're going to talk about today. That despite their outward profession of faith, which was legitimate, they had compromised. They had allowed the world to infiltrate and affect the church and the way that they conducted worship. And Jesus is telling them by announcing himself as the one with the sword, I'm the one you're going to have to deal with. Not somebody who disapproves of you. Me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this is intimidating for us because it's hardly a secret that the American church is riddled with compromise. And this is not unique to us, but it's our church, and we need to look it squarely in the face. How much we have allowed the world's thoughts and ideas and theories to infiltrate how we go about gospel ministry. We need to remember, it is not your grandma, it is not the testimony of the church fathers, it is Christ Jesus you will have to answer to. And Jesus makes a distinction in this passage between those who have compromised and those who have not. You cannot always control those in the church that are compromising with the world, but you can control yourself and those that are under your authority, that we will not compromise because we have Jesus Christ to answer to who has a sword in his hand. But I'm getting ahead of myself as we move into verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is always the next thing that Jesus does as he announces, I know. Very often it's, I know your works. Last time it was, I know your suffering, your affliction. Here he comes in and says, I know where you dwell. He's referring to their cultural situation. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus gets that? He says, I get it. I know where you live. I know the times you live in. I know the, th- the theories that are in the air. I understand. It doesn't mean that he approves or gives, gives slack because of it, but he does know. In fact, here twice he says that they dwell where Satan's throne is. Where Satan dwells, he says at the end of the verse. Pergamum is where Satan's throne was. And this is really uncertain what Jesus is getting at if we're trying to make it specific. I think the point is clear that Satan has sway over your city, but some have wondered, is he saying something a little more specific 
Uh, I think the most common one is that temple of Asclepius, which was a worship of what? Of a serpent. The people have pointed to the fact that, that this is satanic, that what they're doing, worshiping the, the serpent for healing, which is the exact opposite of what a serpent brings, right? And of course, later in Revelation, it will refer to Satan as the serpent of old, which he is. Uh, it, it, it might not be. You, you got to not be so certain with some of these things. Uh, you can try to see specific reference in all kinds of things. I think that's a pretty good way to look at it. There also was a great temple to Zeus there. Uh, the head of the Greek pantheon is, is a pretty good candidate for Satan, in my opinion. But in any case, the devil had sway over Pergamum, and the church was a minority group there. It wasn't like Jerusalem, where at least the Lord was worshipped, and that there was some you know, level of rapprochement between the Jews and the, and the Gentile Christians. In Pergamum, the devil was the king. The Bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. In Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Those are descriptions of rank in the Bible. We saw this back in the book of Daniel, that there was a prince of Babylon, a prince of Persia, a prince of Greece. And so it seems to be that the authority, the spiritual authority over Pergamum was not Christ's authority, it was Satan's authority. And he references this uh, by pointing to a case of martyrdom that had happened. He's commending them first. He always starts with a commendation. He says, you're dwelling where Satan's throne is, yet you've held fast my name. You are still standing on the name of Jesus, and he did not deny my faith. I love that possessive that he uses there, my faith. My faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. And you probably know this, the word for witness is the word martyr. And the, the word for witness and martyr came to mean somebody that was a witness unto death. And that's who Antipas was. He had been killed among you. They had lost somebody. We don't know anything else about this guy named Antipas. We just know that he was martyred for the Lord in Pergamum. Whether this was an official uh, execution, whether this was a, a mob that came for him, like came for Paul or came for Stephen several times, it doesn't say. We just know that he was killed, and this was one of the reasons the Lord could say Satan's throne is in Pergamum, or Satan is on the throne in your city. A frightening thought, of course. But the church had maintained the faith, even through persecution, which is such a glorious thing to remember. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't care if Satan is on the throne in this city. He's not on the throne in this church or in the lives of God's people. And they are unstoppable when they follow Jesus. He's promised to sustain his church, even through violent pressure from the outside world. So the world's opinion of the church, even if it is a violent and oppressive one, is to have no bearing on what we believe or what we do as Christians, because that's just always going to be the way. We talked about this a lot last time, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. Just to remind you, you are expected to endure through harsh, even violent pressure against the church. God's not going to give you a break because you say, well, you don't understand how hard it was. Lord says, no, no, I, I know where you dwell. I know that Satan's on the throne, but you are expected to endure and keep going. I, I've already bought your soul with my blood. Don't try to take it back so that you can preserve your life. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will what? Lose it. Lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it like Antipas did. You don't get a pass 
on persecution just because it was really hard. And it seems interesting to me that the harder the persecution gets, the, you know, the stronger the church stands. But sometimes it's that weak, low-level, constant dripping that can wear the church down. We've got to be able to be strong against both of those things. And because we are living in a similar world where, I don't know if you can say that Satan's throne is where we are, but he's certainly making a play for that throne, shall we say. And this is what we've got to remember as we get into what they were doing wrong in the following verses. We don't compromise. We don't try to make a deal. We don't try to go halfsies with Satan. That's what he tries to do. So if Satan can't get you head on, he'll try to make a deal. You know, it's, like, it's like, why would I make a deal with you? I've already won. You know, if you're the winner in a battle, you don't go to the person and say, okay, now what can I give you to put an end to the fighting? It's like, I'm winning. <laughs> I'm not going to make a deal, but that's what Satan tries to get us to do. And it's unfortunately what the church in Pergamum had done. So let's look at verse 14 and 15 as we go on now. We just saw the commendation. Here is the rebuke or the correction that comes. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Despite their faithfulness under persecution, Jesus had a few things against them. This is good to remember just in passing. Many times we can be so excited for a church that endures persecution that we can be uncritical of the way that they go about doing ministry. And in, in the Christian church, like we look at, uh, you know, for example, Nepal is a place I'm very familiar with. Lots of persecution. And you go over there and you can start to, you know, get excited. And man, look at how they're standing firm, you know, the underground church. And, but very often there's all sorts of problems in those churches that need to be corrected, that sometimes are not corrected because we're just so excited that they're enduring under persecution. Jesus didn't see it that way. He goes, I expect you to endure under persecution. I also expect you to have the rest of these things right. He references the teaching of Balaam, or Balaam, it would have been pronounced, which is a reference back to Numbers 22 through 25. We talked about this not long ago on Wednesday nights. I would encourage you to go back and take a listen to those Bible studies. They're all on the website for free. We just finished the book of Numbers on the radio, uh, so maybe you heard some of it. But I'm sure you know the story of Balaam if you grew up in the church. He was a prophet for hire. Balaam was kind of like a witch doctor, where he would talk to whatever God, whatever spirit he needed to, in order to curse or to bless. And he was summoned by a, a king named Balak, or Balak, is how you would have pronounced that. He said, hey, I've got these Israelites. They just wiped out my enemies, King Sihon, and they now occupy land that used to be mine before Sihon took it. I'm a little afraid they're going to come for me next. Would you come and curse them, please? So, you know, this is not biological warfare. This is like, let's try and launch some spiritual warfare against my enemies. And so Balaam finds out what God do they worship? They worship Jehovah God. And he cries out to the Lord and is trying to use all his tricks to bend the God to his will. And this time the real God shows up and says, you ain't touching my people. And so he says, I can't, I'm not going with you. I'm not messing with this God. He's not letting me curse them. So Balak comes back with more money. And Balaam goes back to the Lord and says, are you sure I can't curse them? Because that's an awful lot of money. And the Lord says, fine, you want to go, you go, but don't you curse them. He says, oh, great, the Lord said I could go. And the Lord's like, I didn't exactly say that, but all right. Well, on the way, he, he, his donkey keeps on having visions of an angel with a giant sword in his hand. 
maybe another reason why Jesus referenced the fact that he had a sharp sword. And this sword is about to take Balaam's head off until his donkey gets out of the way. You know the story. He beat the donkey, and it turns out the donkey could see more than the seer who's supposed to be able to see visions. And uh, he was not able to curse Israel. He goes up several times on the mountain to try to curse them, and the Holy Spirit only gave him blessings. And so Balak was angry and was probably not in a mood to pay this guy for a curse that didn't happen. So here's what Balaam did. He recommended, I can't curse the people. I can't bring down heavenly curses because God's already purposed to bless them. But here's what you can do, King Balak. You send all of your beautiful women down to the camp. You have them seduce the men. And you tell them that, well, we can't be together unless you're willing to come to these temples and worship our false gods. Then we can be together. And that plan worked. That plan worked. The, the men of Israel began to worship Baal of Peor in order to get a chance with these ladies. And God sent a terrible plague upon the people until uh, Moses and Phinehas put a stop to all of the sexual immorality. But you see what happened. He tried to curse them and couldn't. So he said, let's seduce them through sexual immorality. These are the kinds of things that were going on in the church here, apparently. Numbers 31, 16, Moses sums it up and says, Behold, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of Israel. So if you're looking at Revelation chapter 2 here, you're holding the teaching of Balaam. Now we know the story of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. If I can't curse them, let's get them to break God's law and God will curse them for you. And he says, that kind of thing is going on in your church. Now maybe the Lord is just using this as an example although it seems that idolatry and sexual immorality were part of the problem here. The Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, when they were first trying to figure out how are we going to get all these Gentiles into this church that has up to this point been only Jews? What do we do with the law of Moses? Now, Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James were very, very clear and it was very well understood. The law is not necessary for salvation. However, they sent out a list of a couple things for all the churches to observe. First of all, to maintain harmony between the churches but also a couple things that were just true throughout salvation history, regardless of the dispensation. And two of them were to abstain from things polluted by idols and to abstain from sexual immorality. These are one of the two things. The other thing was for things strangled and things with blood. And this, if you read through your New Testament, comes up quite a bit, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes the point about this. He says, I, I recognize that when you go to the market, sometimes there is meat for sale there that had been sacrificed to an idol in some sort of festival, and it was left over, and it's being sold at a discount in the meat market. What Paul says was, don't ask too many questions. Just buy the meat. An idol is not anything anyway. He says, but if you somehow find out that this thing had been sacrificed to an idol, for example, you go to dinner at someone's house, and they said, oh, yes, we sacrificed this to Apollo the other day. He says, then you need to abstain from it. And you certainly don't need to be going into those temples, participating in the rituals, and eating the food there. If you've ever read the Odyssey, the Iliad, any of those uh, ancient Greek things, the sacrifices were not just sacrifices, it was also a feast. You'd sacrifice a hundred bulls to the gods, and then you would eat them. And Paul's saying, you've got to stay away from those things. If you don't know where the meat came from, fine. 
That, that's one thing. Just, you know, if, you, if you're only going to eat vegetables, that's cool too. But the minute you know that this was communion with an idol, stay away from it. And he sums it up in 1 Corinthians 10 with these words. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? He's like, is this somehow like magic meat that is going to curse you? Some people think that about certain things, and that's not what he's getting at. Or that an idol is anything? It's like, I thought idols weren't real. And Paul's like, no, they're not. But he says, here's what I imply. That what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Notice how the Bible makes a very, very qualitative distinction between angels and demons and God. God is not just the top angel. He's of a different kind from these others. He says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So the point was, if you know the meat is idolatrous, avoid it. All right, don't, you don't want to be even a little bit participating in some ritual that was offered to a demon. And, and certainly don't go into the, the, the temples and worship there and say, well, it's not real anyway. Paul goes, demons are involved here. The, the, Satan's throne is where you are, Jesus is saying. There is real demonic activity going on. And it's not that they have power over us. It's that we're not to have fellowship or any kind of connection with the works of darkness. And it seems in the church of Pergamum, there were men like Balaam who were compromising in this way and teaching others that it was okay to compromise this way. That it was all right to go to these idolatrous ceremonies, eat the meat that had been sacrificed there, and commit sexual immorality, which was very often part of the worship of these false gods. Not only that, he references the Nicolaitans. And I told you we would take some time to examine who the Nicolaitans are, so let's do that now. The difficulty is we're not going to come to a firm answer on this because we just simply don't know. We saw this back in chapter 2, verse 6. The church in Ephesus, although they had left their first love, which was a problem, at least they stood firm against the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said, I hate the Nicolaitans and I hate their doctrines. You get to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 13 and 14 and 15. He's like, you got Nicolaitans in your church and that is not okay. So let's look at what this might have been. There's, there's four main options that people put forward on what a Nicolaitan might have been. The first option is that these were disciples of somebody named Nicholas, like a Nicolaitan. Like the word Christian comes from the word Christ, or Calvinist comes from the word for Calvin. A Nicolaitan is related to the word Nicholas. And there is a Nicholas in the Bible, Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was one of the seven first deacons of the church, along with Philip, along with Stephen. And Irenaeus, who was a church father that wrote in the 100s AD, so not too long after this, he says that the church tradition was that this man, Nicholas, who was one of the first evangelists, the first uh, deacons, eventually led a, a splinter group away from the church and adopted some Gnostic ideas. Believing, for example, that the spiritual is what's real and the physical doesn't matter. He got into adoptionism, which is the belief that Jesus was not the son of God, but he became God later when God brought him into heaven, which is, of course, all kinds of heretical. Uh, so that could be it, that these Nicolaitans, their, their Christology was askew. They had a different cosmology, a view of the universe. Difficulty is... We can't be certain. Irenaeus wrote some time later, and many people have said this is, this is just his interpretation because we really don't have references to this group anywhere else. But that's one option, a very popular one. 
The other one likes to do a, a word breakdown of the word Nicolaitan. So it's a combination word of, of two Greek words. First one is Nike, which you've seen the swoosh, right? Nike means victory. And Laetin is like the word for laity. It means people. So victory over the people. And many believe this was a derogatory term for those that were trying to dominate other people in the church. That this was the authoritarian movement in the church, trying to separate between the laity and the clergy, trying to set up a hierarchy of structure. Uh, many who are, are very opposed to the way the church developed bishops and elders and um, eventually the papacy and things like that want to say this is where it began. But the way you get there is by breaking down the word. And that's not always the best way to go about this. For example, a butterfly is not butter that flies, although that is what those two words mean. That's uh, a classic example of how not to do word studies. It, I mean, it could be, um, but this is, there's no ancient witness to that. But it's a possibility. The other one that you hear a lot is that these were Judaizers. These were legalists. These were people in the church that were trying to like with Paul, trying to tell people you needed to keep the law in order to be saved. The reason people will say that is because we don't know in Bible times of any other heresies that were around. Uh, this is what the New Testament is constantly writing against. The Gnostics would have come next, but those didn't really develop until after the time of the apostles. So uh, some people say the only false teachers we really know of in the New Testament were Judaizers. So Jesus making a reference to Nicolaitans, that's just John's word for it. I think that's probably a pretty weak answer uh, because the Bible uses the term Judaizer quite a bit. It refers to the circumcision often. And uh, I would think that John would just come out and say it or Jesus would. But um, maybe there was a man named Nicholas who was pushing that, but uh, we're really not certain. And the last one is to connect Nicolaitan to what is described here to the church of Pergamum. That a Nicolaitan was somebody who was pushing the doctrines of Balaam. Compromise with idolatry. Loose morals on sexual issues. Uh, that this, this is what a Nicolaitan was. It's kind of you can do whatever you want. That was going on in the church at Pergamum. It depends on do you... Do you say, see the Nicolaitans as something different than those who have the doctrines of Balaam, or is he connecting the two? It just depends on how you read that. So those are a couple options, uh, whether these were people that followed a man named Nicholas, whether these were authoritarians, whether these were Judaizers, people that uh, were libertines, they were licentious on matters of idolatry and, and sex. Short version is we don't know, and I kind of am glad that we don't know. It's kind of nice when you hear an old heresy and you say, I've never heard of that before. Good. That means we beat it. <laughs> uh, I think today's probably the most prominent heresy that's getting into the church is some, you know, strain of that postmodern idea, which is words don't really mean anything. It's all perspective. The text of scripture doesn't mean what it says. You have to import meaning into it. And that has all sorts of different forms that it takes. There are great Christian apologists that are really taking it to task. Uh, but, I mean, that's a problem. If you don't believe that words mean anything, and God gave us a book, and Jesus is called the Word made flesh, I mean, you're in some serious trouble. So I'm not going to talk about that today, but um, you need to know about these things. You need to make sure that the ideas you're saying, even if they sound good, find out where they came from, because you might be imbibing something that you shouldn't be. In any case, you had those that had the doctrine of Balaam, sexual immorality, idolatry, and Nicolaitans. Perhaps they were the same person. Maybe not. Just like Israel in the book of Numbers, 
The church of Pergamum was so strong, they could not be defeated head on. The devil brought full-on persecution. One of them even died through it. And the church stayed strong. So the devil says, all right, we're going to change tactics. We're not going to come at them head on anymore. We're going to come at a sidewind. We're going to come through compromise. They were being pressured not into deny Jesus Christ or give up your life. They were being pressured into participating in their godless culture, which included idolatry and sexual morality. And it could be that the appeal the devil used was, if you want to avoid persecution, maybe don't be so dogged on some of this stuff. And it could be that's the attempt that he used. But God was not pleased by that. In fact, it even left them open to false teaching. Even though they kept their testimony as a Christian church and they, they believed in Jesus, we, we've talked about this, you can believe a lot of the right things, but what are you mixing it with? And I, it seems to me that their compromise on issues of idolatry and immorality is probably what left them open to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Have you ever considered that God views compromise in your life between the world and the gospel as idolatry? Now, we live in a culture, mercifully, that doesn't bow down to idols. Like, you don't have a shrine down the street where you're going to go and bow down to something. But that is not to say that idolatry does not still take place, or that those demons that inhabited these idols before are not still active. They might say, well, these people are too well taught, too well inoculated against bowing down to the golden statue, so let's try and find another way. And like Balaam, it's, they're never going to bow down to the idols just because we tell them to. Maybe we can find a way to get them to compromise. And I'm going to look at five examples of this here, that I think this happens in the church today. And I've, I've kind of got a picture of a fishing rod here that Satan uses. And he's, he's got the hook. What's the hook that he gets us? He's trying to get us to bite on. It's, it's compromise. It's idolatry. He's trying to get you to go into the temple of Baal of Peor and worship. Now, we're not going to do that, so what does he need? He needs bait. And the bait is sin. Bait is the Moabite women, Midianite women, coming down and seducing everybody. That's the immorality. And the net that he uses to draw us in the end is infidelity, false teaching. He says, I want them to compromise the faith. They won't do it on their own, so I'll tempt them with all sorts of immorality. But in the end, that's when I've got them. That's when I can get them to deny, as the word says in another place, even the Lord who bought them. So we're going to look at this. The hook, the bait, and the net. Idolatry, immorality, and infidelity. In five different areas, we're going to look at this. And the first one is the one he referenced, and it's unfortunately all too easy to talk about this in this day and age, is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. It begins by... What's the hook? What's the idolatry he's trying to get us to buy into? What is the, the temple he's trying to get us to come in and spend some time? Now, this is the idea that, that sex is, is really amoral. It's a personal issue. It doesn't have to do with what God says. What matters is how each individual handles it. And while we're not going into the temple of Baal of Peor, we're not going to the temple of Asclepius, how does he get us? Where, where does he get us to begin to drink these ideas in? I mean, the first obvious one is pornography, where all of a sudden pornography becomes this place where you're spending time, even if you disagree with it, but you're imbibing the ideas that give rise to that. You also, he can come at us that way through sympathy. 
You see somebody who is struggling with sexuality, struggling with issues of gender, and as a good person, as a believer, you feel bad for this person and you love them. And the devil starts to whisper in your ear, this could all go away if we just dropped these ideas about sex that the Lord has. Those different areas where we start to go into those temples. And what's the immorality? What's the bait? Well, you start believing this, you can have all kinds of sexual gratification. Whatever you want. It's, it's going to feel great. And it's going to get stranger and weirder as time goes on. You're not even going to recognize yourself anymore as you chase that idea. But ultimately, the devil is not really concerned with what you do with your body. He's trying to get you to that last stage, which is infidelity. Now, how does having soft, compromising views on sex lead to infidelity, to abandoning the faith? If you believe that all these things can be done, and whether that's homosexuality or adultery, whatever it is, what you are saying is the cross means nothing. Jesus didn't have to die for this stuff. If you don't believe that somebody that commits these sins is going to hell, then what did Jesus die for in the first place? Why did Jesus have to suffer and bleed and be separated from his father if, if none of this was a big deal? And so this is why inevitably, when you start hanging out in that temple, the temple of Venus, you might say, eventually you're going to get to the place where you don't see the need for the cross anymore. Maybe that's what the Nicolaitans were. The second one is emotional immorality. Emotional immorality. Is it possible to be immoral in your emotions? Oh, yes, it is. And the fact that it, we feel kind of awkward when I say that shows us where we got to look out for this one. What's the ideology? What's the idea that the enemy is trying to convince us to compromise on? Here's the idea. Emotions cannot be helped. The way you feel about something cannot be helped and cannot be changed, nor should you try to change it. How does the, Lord, how does the uh, enemy get us to that place? How do you, well, first, like, like last time, through sympathy. You see somebody who's dealing with depression or somebody who's dealing with anxiety or some kind of other disorder, and you feel bad. And the thought that, no, there's nothing to be done for them, is, is, that makes you feel better than some of the things Jesus said, like, be anxious for nothing. Right? Or rejoice in the Lord always. If you say it's impossible to rejoice always, well, that's just easier then. Social media will get you on this one, man. Because if you say anything against anything somebody feels, immediately they're going to come back and they're going to say, hey, you're invalidating my experience. I'm just trying to speak my truth. Can I just say, by the way, how was the church warned so long about this whole my truth thing coming in and we still bought it? What is wrong with us? I remember we used to make fun of that. We said, ah, can you believe saying that? And now people just say it like it's no big deal. People in the pulpit will say that. That's that heresy that's under, under, uh, undermining all this idea of the gospel. The Lord's like, I don't care about your truth. I care about my truth. What's real truth? But all these things, you can even be educated into this. The idea that emotions and these, these heart issues cannot be helped. What's the immorality? What's the bait there? Oh, man, your emotions can just go crazy. Isn't it interesting that extreme joy and extreme anger and extreme grief all give you the same rush? And it doesn't really matter which one it is. I'd prefer to be happy, but for some of us, we know being in deep, deep grief gives you that same rush. You get that same heartbeat. You get that same feeling of mattering, like something is real. My life is, is I, I must be interesting. I must matter because look how deeply I'm feeling about this. But it always leads to infidelity at the end. 
Where is he trying to get you? Again, the devil doesn't care if you let your emotions run wild. What he cares about is you getting to the place where you say, God is not good, and God doesn't love me. If God really loved me, God would never tell me that the way I'm feeling is not okay. God would never come in and offer to deliver me out of this because this is just who I am and the way I am. And doesn't he know what I went through? God doesn't care. And you've arrived at the same place as somebody dealing with something totally different. Here we go. How about this one? Political immorality. I, don't, I hope I don't need to convince anybody that you can be immoral in your politics. Oh, everybody's all tense now. What's he going to say? He's not going to call out my team, is he? I just might. What's the idolatry here? What's the hook? Here's the hook. The world is up to us. It's up to us to save and fix the world. Now, that sounds very heroic, doesn't it? That makes me stand up straight. All right, well, let's get down to business. And people say, well, do you think that we should just let things go and not step in? Did I say that? No. I'm saying the enemy is trying to convince you that the world is up to you. And where's the temple where we hang out, where we start to imbibe this idea? Well, it's not hard to figure this one out. It's the news. You can call it news, right? Most of it isn't reporting news. Most of it is propaganda from one source or another. And we sit there and we'll just hours and hours. People who say things like, man, the church was an hour and 38 minutes today. What is wrong with him? But you'll sit down and you'll watch CNN or Fox News or what have you for five hours a day, spending a lot of time in there. Always, everything you read is about one of these ideas, everything you watch, everything you talk about. You ever known somebody, and I've been this guy so I can say this, has nothing interesting to say unless we're talking about politics or something in the news? I, I, that, I was not very much fun back then, I know. But what's the, what's the bait? Why, we think about that and we go, I don't want to live like that. But what's the bait? The immorality is the rage that you can feel. That justified, righteous indignation. And also it frees you up to do carnal bargaining. I can try to fix this problem without really worrying about what God thinks about it. There are so-called Christian people in the public sphere that say, we, really, we got to try to solve this problem and convince people about what to be done without using scripture. What? Hello? <laughs> And we say, oh, that makes sense. Well, well, they don't believe the Bible. Well, they need to. It's God's word. It's God's everlasting, inerrant, all-powerful word. And where does that take you? Where's the infidelity you get to? And I've met some people that have gone this far. It's scary. You spend too much time in this. Jesus is not king here. If Jesus can't help us with this problem, then maybe we should go back to the old Norse gods. That's happening. Maybe not for you, but for your kids. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. You can't win an election by turning the other cheek. Well, then maybe we shouldn't. How about number four? Intellectual immorality. Here's the idolatry. Here's the hook. We can know everything. That's the oldest one, man. All the way back. You'll become like gods, knowing good and evil. Now, there's two branches to this one. And I realize I'm running out of time, but there's two branches to this one. First of all, you got that, you, what you probably thought of at first, that academic, very scientific view of the world. It can also go that other way and have that conspiratorial, occult, witchcraft view of the world. You just don't know what's really going on behind all this stuff, man. Who, oh, yeah, who cares what the scientists say? What do the magicians say? What, what do the, the conspiracy theories say? It's the same thing. Where's, what's the bait for that? Why would you go after something like that? Because it's pride. I know better than everybody else. 
I've got more degrees or I've gone deeper into the mysteries. I'm running into more and more people that are flirting with witchcraft and magic and, and idolatrous worship. It's, it's frightening. Frankly, it's frightening. Not to me because I'm in Christ Jesus, but for them. Idolatry is not kind to its adherents. And of course, the infidelity, both of them take you to the same place, that the gospel's a myth. Whether you come as a scientist, ah, the gospel is just made up, it's just history, it's just this. We know this can't happen. Or you come through and you can see through everything. Oh yeah, you talk about the gospel, you talk about this and that. You just don't know what's really going on, man. And the last one I'll go through briefly is material immorality. This is just stuff, just things. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The more you party, the more you watch TV, the more you spend time soaking in the internet. You start to think that this world is all there is and feeling good and doing good, that, that's all that really matters. And the immorality, the bait there is that constant consumption. You can constantly be chasing the things that you want. Who wouldn't like that? Being satiated all the time. God forbid I'd be bored for two minutes. And the infidelity at the end of that is that the spiritual is not real. Money's real. Pleasure's real. Food is real. Sleep is real. Jesus, well, it's nice. And we just can set aside all the commandments of Christ. The paths to compromise are many, but they all end up at the same place. The Bible tells us, Christians, we're to be separate from the world. So many people, I read an article not long ago where somebody is like, we've got to make sure that we're heeding the criticisms of the world. To which I say, I do not recognize the world's ability to criticize the church. We're supposed to be different and separate from them. 2 Corinthians 6, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Whether to avoid persecution or just to taste the world's goods, it's never right to compromise. When you are spending time in a different temple other than that of the Lord and the bait's dangled in front of you, you might be able to resist, but that's a terrible way to go about it. A church that cannot be defeated through frontal assault will be susceptible to compromise. Guard your boundaries carefully because the devil's at work. This isn't just us trying to do better. The devil is at work trying to undermine these things. And I'll say, especially to you parents who have found out where you're strong and where you're weak and have set up your own boundaries, do not assume that it's the same for your kids. It's something that for you is not a temptation. It might be a temptation for them. And you've got to draw the lines nice and tight until you are sure that the Lord has got hold of your family. Verse 16, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. War against who? Those in your midst who hold the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Very simple command. Repent. Turn away from such things. Stop living that way. Stop believing that way. Come back to simple, holy obedience. Or I'm going to take this sword in my hand, he says, and I'm going to come to war against you. Revelation 19.15 talks about Jesus Christ striking down the nations with a sharp sword. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And don't forget in Numbers 22.31, 
The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. So would Jesus fight against his own church? Yes. Is the Lord ever going to allow his church to be destroyed? No. But the Lord chastises those whom he loves, and he will not allow the devil to get hold of his church. And if you don't believe in the devil, then do you believe that book in your lap or not? Well, I believe it's symbolic. Well, you read through it and you tell me how you know that exactly. Because it sure treats him like he's real. What right have we to pray for blessings when we're sharing in communion with the devil and his angels? I'm not doing it on purpose. Yeah, but the devil's a liar and a trickster and a deceiver. Your own life is in danger of destruction from the Lord if you do not repent. You can't be the compromising one hiding in a group of good people because Jesus is able to sort it out. He didn't say, I'm going to war against all of you. Because I'm going to war against those among you that have these false doctrines. And I think we've seen throughout church history, there are times where the Lord sweeps through the church and certain groups just fizzle away. Because the, the integrity of the church is more important than the numbers of the church. God's warning you. And those of you that are tuning this out because you're like, look, I come to church to get revved up for the week and then go out and do my thing. This is getting too personal. Jesus is warning you that I'll come and war against you with the sword of my mouth, whether or not I named your thing today or not. Can you not see that the devil is at work in our midst? Is this stuff real to you? It's got to be Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus. The world is sick and tired of halfway people. Just everybody else is radical about something. Can't we be radical about something real? I just want a normal life. Those days are over, guys. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's done. It's time for us to be radical for Jesus, to be all in for Jesus. Only you can see today where you have fallen. And then you've got to come forward and be free of those chains. Because let me tell you, guys, the devil will bind you up. Immorality feels like freedom. It's not. It's bondage. Heresy feels like freedom. I'm, I'm, I'm free. I'm not following the old creeds. I'm not following the faith. I'm kind of believing. I'm a free thinker. No, you're not. You're a bound thinker. Because it all leads to the same place. You've got to look out. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. They always end with an admonition to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because these words are not just for the church at Pergamum. In this day, it's for all churches everywhere that might be facing this. That are starting to compromise with the world's culture. To chase its immorality. To believe its ideas. And even to believe its heresies. We all have heroes like Antipas that we look back and say, we've got to be like them. Well, then let's be like them. What's stopping us? Well, I kind of have some things I'd like to keep around. Oh, y'all, it's not going to burn. Get rid of it. You don't need it. You just need the Lord. And look what he's, what's awaiting those who repent and conquer. Hidden manna. All God's people said, cool. <laughs> Hidden manna? Some people, I read one book. One guy was convinced he knew what this was. I'm like, shut up. No, you don't. <laughs> It's hidden. It's secret manna. It's, it's sustenance. It's bread from the Lord. And a new name. 
Some of you guys say, I, I know I need to get rid of this stuff, but I don't even know if I'll know who I am other than this. That's a lie of Satan, by the way. That's how you know the devil is tempting you and has got a hold of you. If you can't even conceive of yourself apart from sin, that's not how Jesus sees you. He says, I've got a new name written for you, and nobody will know it but you and me. What does that teach us? A couple things. Number one, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, not a collective relationship with Jesus Christ. And also, nobody but Jesus and you are ever going to know all that God did for you. Isn't that awesome? No, not everybody needs to know all the things you've been through with Jesus. He knows. And there's a new future with a better identity waiting for you. And that's how I'll end here. Things are better with Jesus. And many times we're prepared against the frontal assault, but Satan tries to sneak in through the back door. Don't let that happen. Come to the Lord Jesus. Obey his commandments. Believe his gospel. And let's see what the Lord would do with a church like that.